going to read from the book of Esther. Um, if you can't find it in your Bible, it's just after Nehemiah and just before Job. So um, you might find it easier. It's quite a long passage, so you might find it easier to follow along. Now, in the days of King Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. The drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the woman in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mamuhin, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abatha, Sethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Abmatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimucan said, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble woman of um, Persia... Um, and Medea, who have heard of the queen's behaviour, will say um, the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, I'll let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to become before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she." So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people, 
in its own language, that every man be master in his household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done um, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the woman. Let their cosmetics be given them and let the young woman who pleased the king, the queen, be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter um, of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favour. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her young woman to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the woman, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take in with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, daughter of Abihail, uncle, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as her own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favour in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favour in his sight more than all the virgins, so that, she, that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, 
and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Fiona. That was a beast, so fair play to you. Honestly, that was... I don't think I've ever heard anybody read um, just quite as well. So many big words and big names. Um, I was always told whenever you had big names like that, just read them confidently, quickly. Everybody believes that you got it right, and you did that. So well done. Um, What do you do when it seems like God isn't there? Where do we turn when it appears that God is just absent? These are questions all of us face in life at one time or another. What are we meant to think and to believe when we seek to be faithful to God and he seems nowhere to be found? How do we make sense of things in life when our convictions about God and his goodness and his love for us seem to be contradicting our experience of life on this earth? We're starting a five-week series in the book of Esther, a book which in large parts sets out to help us answer questions like that. Where is our God? Because in this book, God seems entirely absent from the story. God's name isn't even mentioned once. It never mentions the law or prophecy or miraculous supernatural things happening or even prayer. It seems like God just isn't there. But here's what a commentator, Landon Dowden, says, which I think is so helpful as we come to this book and as we come on this journey. The big idea that Esther wants us to see is that with God, the presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. It's a hard one to get your head around, so I'm going to read it again. With Landon Dowden, he says this, the big idea that Esther wants us to see is that with God, the presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. Just because God isn't mentioned with all the other characters in this story, we would miss the point and the message of Esther if we didn't realize that no matter how significant those other characters may be, Almighty God himself is the director. He's the main character as well, and he's the one who casts the entire show. God doesn't just appear here and there in this story. He is the one orchestrating the entire thing. His fingerprints are all over this book. And it's exactly the same in our lives today, which is why this book is so crucial for us. God is sovereignly sovereignly in control of this world. He is in charge of every moment, in every place, at all times. Everything that happens into the wider story of redemptive history. And if we're a Christian here this morning, then that is something that should be a comfort to us, an encouragement for us. Because when we read verses like Romans 8, verse 28, which says that God works for the good of those who love him in all circumstances, in all situations, that just isn't a verse that's true in the good times 
when things are easy. It isn't just a a pick-me-up kind of verse which flies in the face of our experience in the real life, the nitty-gritty of the here and now. No, that's a verse which we can be sure is the truth, the absolute truth, that in all circumstances, in every situation, God is indeed working for our good, for the good of those who love him and who he has called according to his purposes. He's working for his glory in it all. This is why we're going to study the book of Esther. And this is why I'm excited about these next five weeks. Now, before we set off on this journey, there are a couple of things I want to to make sure we know from the outset. Here's the first thing. This is a narrative. It's a story. And it's got all the ingredients of a brilliant story. And so the way we'll preach it is going to be slightly different from the way we would normally preach maybe something like we have for the book of Esther, that kind of expositional preaching verse by verse. You'll be pleased with that this morning because you've seen how long this is, so we're not going to preach it verse by verse, but more chunks, kind of themes in this. And I'd encourage you in this to to read the the reading plan that we've given. So you maybe saw it on social media this week because it means then you kind of come prepared for each of those uh, readings and and for what's going to be ahead. So do use it to read ahead. And then the second thing is this. For some of us, Esther might be a book that we're really familiar with, a book that we love, a book that means a lot to us maybe. For others, it might be something that's completely new, that we've never read before, a story which will be completely unfamiliar to us. Whoever you are, whatever way you come to this book, I want you to leave your preconceptions about Esther at the door. I want you to read it with an open mind. Read it without already having made judgments about the characters and the decisions they maybe make in this story. Because as we will see, the amazing thing is that God uses weak, imperfect people who sometimes make questionable decisions. He uses them to bring about his good and perfect plans and purposes in this world. So, keep your Bible open, follow along. We're going to dip in and out of chapter 1 and 2. And in this first two chapters, you're going to see it's really the introduction to our story. So this is where the director sets the scene. He tells us when and where this story takes place. He tees up the main plot line and kind of introduces the big players in this story. And the, the first thing to see is, just right from the outset, is that we've got one kingdom pitted against another. We're going to see the kingdom of the world, the empire of the world, pitted against God's kingdom and God's people. And here's how we're going to break down chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 1 is going to introduce us to the empire, that kingdom of the world and its king. And it gives us a picture of power but not without signs of weakness. And then chapter two is going to introduce us to God's people living in the kingdom of the world, the empire. And it gives us a picture of weakness, but not without signs of God's providence. And then we're going to finish by looking at how all of this leaves us longing for Jesus, the better king of a much better kingdom. So that's where we're going this morning. So chapter one, it gives us a picture of power, but not without signs of weakness. If you've seen the King's Speech, that famous film, the opening credits say this. It's 1925, King George V reigns over a quarter of the world's people. 
And the book of Esther starts in a similar kind of way. As you see the credits roll, it says it is 483 BC and King Ahasuerus reigns over almost all the people of the known world. King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, if you've got an NIV, is the most powerful man on earth. He's the supreme ruler of the world's greatest superpower. He rules a vast kingdom from his royal throne in Susa, one of the four capital cities of the Medo-Persian Empire. You can see on the screen just how vast and enormous this empire really is. It covers a huge area of land. It says in those first three verses that he reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. That is, at that time, the known world, really. It was a kingdom which was inescapable in many ways. You couldn't conceivably go beyond the borders of this empire. It's an inescapable worldly empire. And we see that in the third year of his reign, King Ahasuerus throws a party for all his officials and his servants. And this is the place to be. If you're here, then you are somebody. And right at the head of the table is the man of the moment himself. It's King Ahasuerus. And he wants to make sure that everybody knows he's the man. Look at what he's doing. Verse four. four. He's showing off his vast possessions and wealth. He throws a six-month-long party. Six months long to show off the riches of his, rich glo- or his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness. He's so over the top. He's so lavish. He's saying, look at me. Look at the power I possess. Look at the things I have. There's this air of invincibility about King Ahasuerus and his kingdom. And then as if that wasn't enough, a six-month-long party, he throws a week-long banquet for all his staff at the end of it all. And look at verses 6 to 8. This is an incredible spectacle. The place where he hosts this party is just designed to stun you. Think of a a wedding or a, a party or a feast that you've walked into and just gone, whoa, incredible. It leaves you gawping, almost taking your breath away. This place has the finest of everything. No expense has been spared by this king. And you can imagine the kind of party it becomes very quickly because the wine is flowing freely. King Ahasuerus, he sets the drinking rule in verse 8. The usual custom was that you only drank as much as the king drank, but he sets that aside because the empire of the world is a place of absolute freedom. You can do what you want. You can drink how much you please. There are no limits here. The kingdom of the world just seems irresistible, doesn't it? We want to experience this level of opulence at times, don't we? I know I do. There are times I want to experience the the best this world has to offer. I want to fly first class sometime in my life. I want to experience the thrill of being a VIP at the biggest party in town. You maybe scroll on your Instagram or social media and you look at the lives of some of those people called influencers and you find yourself just that part of you longing for a tiny bit of what you have. It's so easy to get sucked into the empire of the world and what it offers, to think that what's out there and what it offers is what life is really all about. 
We get this picture of power in Esther chapter 1. King Ahasuerus, he wants everyone to bow before him in awe and reverence. He wants to be adored by his subjects. He wants to be feared by his enemies. This man wants to be obeyed by everyone because he wants total control. But as the next scene unfolds, we see the first signs of cracks and weakness in this kingdom of the world. The first time we begin to question the invincibility and the power of King Ahasuerus, because the party reaches its climax, the king is full of wine, and he summons not one, but seven of his royal eunuchs to go and fetch his wife to come to the party, all in order to show off her beauty, as verse 11 says. See how he views his wife? He's not devoted to her. He doesn't love her. He's not given himself up for her. His bride is his possession. She literally is his trophy wife. And this man has everything, or so he thinks. He has total power, unending riches, and the final jewel in his crown is his royal queen. But Vashti won't come. She refuses. We don't know why, but that's not the point. The point here is that very suddenly and very publicly, King Ahasuerus' power and might and influence are all revealed for the empty things that they really are. The author paints the king as an absolute fool, a man who's given himself over to the pursuit of earthly glory, but the most basic realities of life elude him. His marriage is a sham. His wife doesn't respect him at all. His power and his authority aren't anywhere near as absolute as he thinks. And everybody sees it. So verse 12, King Ahasuerus is overcome with a temper tantrum. The man who's seemingly in control of the whole world can't even control his own emotions. And he loses it. And he summons his wise men, verses 13 to 22. He doesn't even know what to do. He asks them, what should I do? What should I do about Vashti? And they say, get rid of her. She's got to go. It's laughable, this next bit. You read it, and there are some times that you chuckle through this because it's just crazy. They say she's setting a terrible, terrible example to the noble women and the wives of this kingdom. This upstart Vashti, she's going to cause a revolt by all these women. Here's what we need to do. We need to banish her from the king's presence, never to be allowed to come to him again. But even more than that, verse 22, a new law is decreed that every man be the master in his own household and speak according to the language of his own people. How ridiculous is this kingdom? How ridiculous and absurd is this king? It's laughable. Human power flexing its muscles over situations and circumstances that it has no real power to fix scrambling to maintain the appearance of control and authority, desperately insecure about losing this facade of power and influence. The writer is just bit by bit unmasking the vanity and the impotence and the insecurity of this king and how ridiculous his kingdom and its values are. We're supposed to laugh at King Ahasuerus and the foolishness of this man, but only as a way to teach us to laugh at ourselves and all the temptations of a world that fixates on what you have 
and what you do and who you are and what you wear and what you know. As Christians, we live in an empire, not the Persian empire, but the empire of the world out there. It's inescapable. It's at times invincible seemingly and often irresistible. And this empire is constantly pushing its values and its systems and its agenda on us right from a young age. It makes us think in certain ways. It expects certain things of of us and causes us to expect certain things of ourselves and of others around us as well. How we should look, the things we should be achieving, the possessions we should have, the people we should be around But we are being invited in Esther chapter 1 here to see the empire of the world and its values from a totally different perspective. To see the things of the world that the world prizes and longs for and offers to us for what they really are. Empty and foolish in light of eternity. Jesus said this in Luke 12, 15. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of things. That's where King Ahasuerus has got it all wrong. And this is something that the writer hopes dawns on us too today. So that we stop being so easily dazzled and impressed by the trappings of earthly glory and power and prestige and wealth. Because as we're going to see in this book... True value lies in an altogether different empire, led by an altogether different and much, much better king. If Esther chapter 1 gives us a picture of power, but not without signs of weakness, Esther chapter 2 gives us a picture of weakness, but not without signs of God's providence. Now, so far, King Ahasuerus has been the prominent figure His empire seemingly invincible, all-powerful, irresistible. And you might be asking the question that we asked at the start, where is God in all this? Is he absent? Is he even here? Well, here in chapter 2, we get the first mention of God's people. And we see the position of weakness and vulnerability God's people hold in the empire of the world. At the banquet... The king lost the plot in furious, drunken anger. And at the start of chapter 2, sometime later, he simmers down and he can't quite believe what he's done. He had the most beautiful woman in the land and he got rid of her just like that. And of course, he can't take her back now. This kingdom is built on appearances. It would be terrible, embarrassing of this king to go back in his word and to take back this queen who defied him has to find a replacement. And so some wisecracks who work in the household, they're called young men. Men are painted terribly in this book. Some young men, they suggest holding a competition to find another queen. It's a Miss Persian Empire, Persia's next top model, the Persian version of Love Island, where the king gathers up all the most beautiful virgins in the land of the harem in Susa, They're beautified for a period of time and they get to spend a night in bed with the king. And at the end of it all, he gets to choose the one that pleases him the most. That's the contest. And as you'd expect, King Ahasuerus absolutely loves it. It's all about him. 
Now, we shouldn't make light of this, though, because this, in reality, is almost like ancient sex trafficking. Young girls, probably in their late teens, early 20s, snatched away from their homes, from their families, from the men who might have hoped to marry them one day, and added harem of the most powerful man on earth and the king he doesn't care who they are he doesn't care where they've come from he doesn't care the lives they've lived the families they've got if they have got the looks then they are in whether they like it or not this is worldly power imposing itself on the weak and the vulnerable preying upon and exploiting others in order to serve its own selfish desires it's depraved It's sordid, it's demeaning. These are the values of the kingdom of the world. But verse five is where we are reminded for the first time that amidst all of the darkness and the worldliness that we have seen so far, this is in fact a story about the history of God's people. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. Now, this is a time in history which is after King David after the kingdom of Israel has been split in two. So the northern kingdom, which is Israel, it has been invaded by the Syrians. And the southern kingdom, which is Judah, which is where the capital city of Jerusalem is, it's been invaded by the Babylonians and they have taken off the people into exile, captive. And then the Babylonian empire, it's taken over by the Persian empire who they come in and take the people away. And this is where we find God's people in the story. And there are some Jews called the faithful remnant. They've gone back to Jerusalem. But a large number of them are still spread out across this massive, vast empire. Even, in fact, Jerusalem is still in this empire. And here's one of those people. It's Mordecai the Jew. He is living in exile. He doesn't belong in the Persian empire. He's an outsider here. One of God's people living in a foreign culture under foreign rule. And as we will begin to see, it's a weak and it's a dangerous position to be in. Verse 7 is where we meet Esther for the first time, or Hadassah, as her Hebrew name is. Mordecai is the legal guardian of his young cousin. And the writer says that the young woman Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. She's a beautiful, striking young woman, which is obviously the reason why she's taken into the king's harem. And verse 10 is a a crucial one. We see in it that Mordecai commands Esther not to reveal her ethnicity as a Jew. He loves her. He's been like a dad to her. He wants to protect her. And probably because he knows how weak and vulnerable they are as God's people living in the empire, he tells her to keep her Jewish identity hidden. And she does. Now, it's easy at this point for us to read the story and to judge And to say, oh, Esther, Mordecai, why could you not be more like a Daniel? Daniel, another book in the Bible where another young Jewish man is taken off into exile in Babylon. And Daniel, he defies the empire. He stands firm in his faith for God. He will not give in. And you might think, Esther, Mordecai, why could you not be more like that? But I don't think the point is for us to judge or to scrutinize their decisions, whether they were right or wrong in doing what they did. If I'm being honest, probably if you're being honest too, who are we to judge them? Because there are probably plenty of times in my life, plenty of times where I've kept my faith hidden from others or conformed to the world in its ways instead of standing up for God and his. I'm guessing 
there would be the same for you. And so I don't think any of us can judge or scrutinize here. And I don't think that's the point either. Because I think the point the writer is trying to make is that to be part of God's people living in the empire of the world is not something to be proud of. It's not necessarily something that we shout about because it often leaves us in a position of weakness and vulnerability. It's maybe something that you can relate to, being in that position where you know that revealing your faith in God will put you at a disadvantage in this world. Maybe it's in work. It's a boss who doesn't put you forward for a promotion in work or is always on your back because he questions your commitment. You seem to be involved in too many other things. This church that you're involved in. Family life at home seems too important to you. Your job isn't your top priority, and it should be. Maybe it's in university. A lecturer who differs in their beliefs and opinions about the world out there, and they're harder on you in class. They make a spectacle of you in front of other people and the beliefs that you have, how laughable they are. They maybe mark you more harshly in different papers that you write for them. Maybe it's family. Maybe you've a family who just refuse to include you in those deeper conversations because they can't be bothered hearing your Christian point of view. Being a Christian in this world is not necessarily a card we feel like we want to play in order to get ahead or to boost our reputation Generally, our views on life don't make us more popular or more liked. They make us more weird, more untrustworthy, more backward or small-minded. Being part of the people of God puts you in a position of weakness, not power in this world. But as the story goes on, we see that when Esther is taken into the king's room, she gains favor there. She receives 12 months of beauty treatment, which seems excessive to me, I don't know. All the best food. She's given seven personal assistants to attend her. She's well looked after, all in preparation for her night with the king. Now, this might sound quite glamorous, and every woman's dream to be pampered in this way. But here's what's really happening here. The virgins in this harem, these young women, would get to spend one night with the king. It's a competition to see who can impress him the most. And after that night, the women are transferred from the harem of virgins to the harem of concubines. When they're moved there, they probably have close to zero chance of ever being called back by the king again, ever being invited into his presence. And they definitely have zero chance of ever being able to marry another man because they have been with the king. This is a terrible way to treat women. It's so defiling and degrading. But as the writer paints this picture of weakness, the weakness of Esther and Mordecai in the kingdom of the world, at the end of chapter two, we see the first signs that something else might be going on here. Underneath all of this, behind the veil in this show, we get the first glimpses of God's providence in this story. Because after her night with the king, we see in verses 17 and 18 that the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
Esther, this young Jewish girl, becomes the queen of this great worldly empire. And the writer shows us, just in verses 19 to 23, that might have seemed quite a random way for us to finish, but he shows us that this is an incredibly significant moment as the plot of this story starts to thicken in text shape. Mordecai has been watching every day at the king's gate to see how Esther is doing. He loves her so much and he wants to see that she's well. And he overhears two men planning to assassinate the king. He passes the information on to none other than Esther, who's in the position now where she can pass the information on to the king. And the plan is discovered. The men planning the murder are hanged, and it says at the end of chapter 2 that the event was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The king has been saved by none other than Mordecai. All extremely significant moments as this story starts to take shape. But as we come to land this morning, I think there are two things the author wants to leave us with at the end of chapter two. The first is this. I think he wants to leave us asking, is this all just a big coincidence? Or is there something else going on here? Is it just a string of coincidences which have led to Queen Vashti being dethroned and Esther becoming queen. And Mordecai overhearing this plot and being able to pass it to Queen Esther, who then can pass it on to the king who saves his life. All just a coincidence? Or is something else going on? Is King Ahasuerus really the one who's in charge here? Is he really the one calling the shots in this empire? Or is someone else pulling the strings? God appears absent, uninvolved in all that's going on. His people appear weak and vulnerable compared to the invincibility of this vast worldly empire. But the author wants us to see that we would be making a serious mistake to come to the conclusion that this means that all of the events unfold away from God's gaze and view. That God is not in control at all here, that this is outside of his power and providence. Remember what we said at the start, the book of Esther is teaching us that with God, the presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. And so I think Esther 1 and 2 is teaching us that just because we can't see what God is doing or where he can be found in our circumstances in life, just because we're not in a position to discern his design or plot his course, it doesn't mean that we should dismiss the presence and sovereignty of God in our world and in our lives. I think Esther 1 and 2 is teaching us to see God's hand in everything, to see his fingerprints all over our lives, and in that, to be patient and willing to trust in the providence of our good Father. Resting in knowing who God is, a loving God, a compassionate Father, a sovereign Lord, one who is with us, who will never forsake us, even when we're in the darkest of days and the most difficult of times in life. One who is leading us in paths of righteousness, 
even when the road ahead seems obscure. One who is always working for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. So a question I think the author wants to leave us to sit on this week is, will you be patient? Whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing right now, will you be patient and will you trust in the providence of God? Will you trust in your good father? Here's the second thing I think the author wants to leave us with today. I think he, wa- uh, he wants to leave us longing for something better. I think he wants to leave us longing for a better king of a better kingdom. Because as I said before, true value lies in an altogether different empire. It's an empire that's led by an altogether and better king. Because ultimately these two chapters paint a picture which leaves us longing for Jesus. The perfect king of God's perfect eternal kingdom. Jesus is so much better than King Ahasuerus. I hope we all see that. And his kingdom is so much better than the kingdom of this world and what the kingdom of this world offers to us. Because Jesus is a king whose rule is perfect and just, whose laws are always wise and always for the good of his people. He's a king who doesn't treat his bride, the church, you and me, the way King Ahasuerus treats his bride Vashti an instrument for self-promotion. No, Jesus is a king who is willing to give himself up for his bride. He isn't impressed by the trappings of earthly success and prestige. His kingdom isn't displayed by marks of external glory. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 1. Jesus, he does not choose many who are wise according to the world's standards or many who are powerful or of noble birth. That's not what Christ's kingdom looks like. Here's what it looks like. He chooses the foolish and weak and despised in the world, even those who are not, to bring to nothing those that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's not based on us and what we do and who we are. It's based on Jesus and who he is, because he is the all-powerful and almighty king of the universe. He's the one the Bible says created all things and sustains all things by the power of his word right now. Yet, he's the one who chose to experience a life of weakness and suffering and even death on a cross for us, for his people, in order to give us life and glory forever. Unlike King Ahasuerus, Jesus is a king who came to this earth and uses his power not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the better king we all need, and he's the better king we all long for. We can sympathize with Vashti, can't we? I can, anyway. Why would she ever come to a king like this? A king who asks her to come for his own glory and for his, himself to parade her around, to make a spectacle so that he looks good. 
Why would she ever accept his invitation? But why would we not accept Jesus' invitation? His invitation to all who want to become part of his kingdom is one that's marked by grace and mercy and love. He is a king in whose rule we can rest secure. He's a husband in whose love we can trust completely. And he is a ruler in whose power we can always take refuge. Let me pray for us now. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it, that even when we read passages like this, books like this, where you seem to be absent, your name is not even mentioned, Father, we know that you are right there at the center of this story. You are orchestrating all things. You're in control of all things. Nothing happens outside of your gaze, nothing outside of your control. Father, I pray that would be a comfort to us this morning. Father, there will be times as well that we struggle to understand in our own lives what's going on, where you are, what you are doing. Father, our circumstances and situations that we're experiencing maybe make us feel like your goodness and your care for us are a distant and a a far-off thing. There's something that isn't tangible in our life right now. Father, thank you that you're a God who allows us to come to you and to ask questions like that, to say that we are confused, we don't know what's going on. Father, we can cry out to you. Thank you that you're a God who, in us asking those questions, anticipates our questions, has an answer for our questions, reveals that you are still with us, you will never forsake us, that your plans are always good, even though we might not understand how that is in the here and now. We can trust you, Father. We can trust in your care and in your providence for us as your people. Because why would you withhold anything from us when you've given us all things in Jesus? You've given us your only son to die on our behalf, to offer us life instead of death, to bring us back into relationship with you. That is what you have given to us. So why would we doubt that you together with Jesus would give us all things? Father, I pray we would acknowledge you in our lives, that we would trust you in our lives, and that we would be encouraged going into our days and into our weeks, knowing that you are right there with us and you are the one who is leading us in all things. And so we pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.